Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 119. What a wonderful psalm this is. Designed by God for the purpose of memorizing it. Uh, I would extend that challenge to you. You say, I couldn't possibly memorize that whole psalm. Yes, you could. Um, I will readily confess I have not yet done so completely. But I know of others who have, and they have done a marvelous job putting this word into their hearts. You say, well, why memorize it? Well, because it was designed to be memorized. It's uh, developed into relatively short strophes of about eight verses each, uh, each one beginning with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So for example, in verses one through eight, you have the first strophe, or one through seven roughly, And each of those verses begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then the second strophe, which is our strophe to concentrate on, begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet until all 22 Hebrew alphabet letters have been uh, used to help you memorize a very critical part of Scripture. One of the things we talked about the last time we were together was how often this psalm speaks of the scriptures. This is a scripture about the scriptures. And in this particular passage, one Psalm 119, which of course is the longest chapter in all of the Bible, we have different words that are used to describe the scriptures. We talked about some of those the last time we were together. The scriptures are called the law. They're called precepts. They're called statutes. They're called commandments, judgments, testimonies, the word or words, righteousness, truth, faithfulness, and a host of other words are used in this psalm to describe the whole of scripture. The place of scripture in our lives is a critical point for us to understand if we are going to pass on a legacy to our children that will bring honor to God. Put very simply, this legacy principle goes something like this. I want my children and I want my grandchildren to know the place of scripture in handling moral temptation. Because moral temptations are going to increase, it is going to become increasingly more difficult to stay pure, and we are going to have to face, and our children, and especially their children, incredible battles if they are going to remain pure in Christ. If you are looking in Psalm 119, I want to see as we read verse 9 through 16 that the Bible says, how can a young man keep his way pure? What a wonderful question to ask all of the young men and young women in our church. How can you remain pure? By living according to your word. Now what does he mean by that? I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands, another word for scripture. I have hidden 
or memorized your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Here the scripture is telling us that one of the great keys in battling moral temptation is to have a reservoir of scriptural knowledge built up in your memory so that when you take arms against the evil one, you do not do so in your own strength, you do so by incorporating the word into the process of deliverance. It is the word of God that Satan flees from. It is not you he is afraid of. It is the word of God in you. Where there is the absence of the word of God, he is not afraid. If he cannot see Christ evident in you and the word of Christ evident in you, then he is not afraid. Fundamentally, Satan is a coward. But when he sees the word engrafted into your soul, when he sees you able to pull that word out at any moment and incorporate it into whatever you might be facing, Satan will flee. The next time we're we're together, we'll take a look at a critical passage in the book of James that says just that. So when we look at this passage, he says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Another word for scripture. With my lips, I recount all the laws, scripture, that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes, scripture, as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts, scripture, and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees, scripture, and this is something you should put on your refrigerator. I will not neglect your word. You say, why the refrigerator? Because you need to eat. And just as you need to eat physical food, you need to eat spiritual food or you will die of spiritual malnutrition. You need the word of God. So when you're going to the refrigerator to fix a sandwich, when you're going to the refrigerator to pull out some old chicken, when you're going to the refrigerator to boost your calorie count, look on the refrigerator where it says, I will not neglect your word. And ask yourself, today, Lord, did I neglect your word? Have I eaten? Is my spirit full? Or am I slowly but surely rotting of spiritual malnutrition? Go over to Proverbs chapter five, if you would, please. And when you are in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, let me tell you why those chapters are there. It was the Jewish belief, the Hebrew rabbis believed that a child's personality was formed by the time he or she is five years of age. I believe that is true. I believe that by the time a little boy or a little girl reaches five years of age, the core, let's call it DNA, personality DNA, is already locked in. From that point on, it is either going to be an experience of growth or an experience of failure in order to shape that personality to conform more to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification is. It's the process by which we learn how to be conformed every day, every second, into the image of Jesus Christ. 
And so the rabbis believed that by the time a child was five years of age, he or she had the spiritual DNA, personality DNA already in place. By the time they were 12 years old, they were considered moving into adulthood. A 12-year-old child was to have learned certain proverbs and certain principles by the time he or she turned 12. Those principles, for the most part, are spelled out in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. When you read Proverbs 1 through 9, you're reading a catechism of instruction to children. It's a father teaching his son. It's a mother teaching her daughter. There are certain themes that are repeated over and over and over again. In the middle of that instruction, in Proverbs chapter 5, Proverbs chapter 6 in part, and Proverbs chapter 7 in the whole, he deals with the issue of moral failure. He wants his son, he wants his children to learn how to resist and stand against moral temptation. And he becomes very, very graphic. He says in verse 1, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. There are some key words there, wisdom, discretion, knowledge. Suffice it to say, wisdom is God's perspective on things. It's a worldview that sees life the way God sees it. It calls it the way God calls it. It views it the way God views it. That's wisdom. The wisdom of God is Jesus Christ. Throughout the Proverbs, you will see wisdom personified, sometimes as a woman, sometimes called she. It's personified to point us to the fact that God will indeed embody all of his wisdom in one person. That person, of course, is Jesus Christ. You want to know God's perspective on things? You need to look at Jesus Christ. Knowledge and discretion are applications of wisdom. When we speak of God's perspective, certain principles will come out. We learn certain principles. And from those principles, we develop certain courses of action. This is what knowledge and discretion is. How to take the knowledge of God and apply it practically through principles that you have been learning by obtaining that wisdom. That's why throughout those first nine chapters, you'll see the fear of God and the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God and discretion and all of those things used to instruct us that God has a perspective. And so he has a perspective on morals. He has a perspective on the, on the male-female relationship. God has a perspective on how a man is to treat a woman and how a woman is to treat a man. God has a perspective on what is appropriate and what is inappropriate behavior. Now, you need to have that wisdom in order to be discreet and in order to be able to apply that discretion principially in certain situations because the cultures change, values change. Morals change. What is right here is considered wrong somewhere else and vice versa. So we have to ask ourselves, did God change his mind? 
is what we believe to be the truth concerning moral behavior in this culture true according to the word of God? Are we to be culturally shaped? Are we to be dictated by the terms of the culture? The answer is categorically no. God has a perspective on marriage. God has a perspective on a sexual relationship outside of marriage. He calls that relationship adultery. In a much broader way, he refers to it as fornication. Porneia is the Greek word. We get pornography from that. Suffice it to say that any relationship, any relationship sexually outside of the confines of marriage between a man and a woman is considered to be a violation of the commandment that says you shall not commit adultery. Whether it's premarital, marital, or postmarital, the principle is the same. The only relationship God calls good is the relationship between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. He has not changed his mind. It is still wrong for you to live together premaritally. It is still wrong for you to have a relationship outside of marriage with a young man or a young woman whom you are, to whom you are attracted. It is still wrong for you to flirt with other people. It is still wrong for you to experience pornography. It is still wrong for you to fulfill your sexual desires any way other than a marital relationship between a man and a woman. God has not recanted. He has not stepped down into our culture, looked us square in the eye and said, you know what, I see how things are changing around here, so I guess I was wrong on this one, and I'm going to recant it so that you can have a good time. God is not going to do that. He still commands us, you shall not commit adultery. Now, there are a variety of ways in which we commit adultery. We can commit it physically. We can commit it emotionally. We are not sinners when we commit the act. We are sinners when we turn from Christ and move toward the act. The sin does not happen just in the act. The sin happens in turning toward the act, as we will see in a moment. Verse 2, that you may maintain discretion, Proverbs 5, and your lips may preserve knowledge. What's he going to tell them now? Here's wisdom. Here's discretion. Here's knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. Didn't say lemons, didn't say acid, said honey, which ought to remind us of something. Usually when Satan tempts us, he tempts us with things that God calls good. But he does so outside of the boundaries in which God permitted that good to occur. So we have appetites, and those appetites are God-created. To abuse those appetites outside of the borders is how Satan lures us. He lures us with honey. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall. And there are ample testimonies sitting right here in this congregation 
watching this on TV, listening by tape, radio, or internet, who can give ample witness to the fact that that is true. Her end is as bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. I believe the core verse in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs that the parents wanted to teach their children was this one. Proverbs 1 and verse 7. I believe it's kind of the heading verse. Look at Proverbs 1-7. The father says to his child, the fear, Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. Let me assure you of something as you're going to see in a moment in Proverbs chapter 7. Your children are fools. Your children are not to be trusted. Does that offend you? You kind of coiling from that? It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing for you to think of your children as foolish and unwise. When God brought them into this world, placed them into the mother's womb, and then birthed them into a family, he did not create them as geniuses. They didn't come out of the womb and say, okay, now, mom, we're going to set the record straight now. I'm in charge here, and you're going to have to follow me. Now, they try. They try to have you revolve your life around theirs. They try to take control of the situation, but they're not wise. When they come to the top of the steps and they've just learned how to walk, there's your heart beats a little bit faster when you're at the bottom of the steps because you realize they are in danger. And so you do something like this, stay right there, stay right there, and you run up the steps to ensure their safety. Why? Because they are foolish. When your children get older, they're just older fools. <laughs> they don't become wise until Christ enters their lives, and then and only then does the wisdom process begin. And it will carry them through to a certain point. Now, here's the point. Some of you in your 40s are still fools. You still don't have any wisdom. Some of you don't have any common sense. We see this again and again and again. Why did you do that? Well, I thought, uh, you thought. With what part of your body did you think? How can you possibly be thinking with your brain? How could you possibly do that knowing the consequences? Well, I thought. Why? Because you've never had wisdom. You've never had wisdom. When our kids were teenagers, we got the same thing you parents get as teenagers with your teenage kids. Same thing. What's the matter, mom? Don't you trust me? Well, we would say, and what part of that don't you understand? Of course we don't trust you. We don't trust you as far as we can spit. And certainly we don't trust when, that when two of you fools get together that we're going to trust you even more. That girl that you're with is a fool and you're a fool. That boy that you're with is a fool and you're a fool. How am I going to trust you when two fools are in the same situation? Of course we don't trust you. 
You're not wise enough. You don't know what you're talking about. You haven't lived long enough to figure this out. Now, one day you will understand. But until then, I'm going to teach you what wisdom looks like. You see, fear of the Lord is where wisdom begins. The most critical issue before your children is the fact that there is nothing that can satisfy the inner longings of our souls short of that for which your soul was created. Because you see, you were created in the image and likeness of God. And it is only as we aspire to the image and likeness of God that we will find the longings of our souls fulfilled. Satan's MO involves two things. He creates in you a weak spot, and then he infects the weak spot. He creates the weak spot, and then he infects the weak spot. I'll give you a for example. Every child enters into a marriage with baggage. Every one of you married in, in, in the context of bringing your own baggage. Those are the created weak spots, the things you learn from your parents. The infections occur when those weak spots are pounced upon by the evil one. You learn things from, how, uh, from your mom as to how to treat a, a man. You've learned from your father how to treat a woman. You've been shaped both positively and negatively, some more positively, some more negatively by the people who raised you. And because of the negative influences, you walk into a marriage infected. There are things you carry into the marriage that you learned in the context of parents who raised you, some for the good and some for evil. All of us are shaped by that. If the statistics are true, 50% of you came from a broken home. That, that shaped you. There are no healings possible in divorce situations. You only learn to adjust to a new level of normal. The damage is already caused. You can't undo the damage to a child caused by a divorce. You simply learn to cope with it and adjust to a different level of normal. So if 50% of you have been infected negatively, impacted negatively by divorce, there's already a weak spot there. The pattern for divorce has already been established. The pattern to walk away is already there. There's nothing you can do about that except to excise it by the power of the Spirit. And on and on I can go. For example, if you boys were raised by a father who gawked at girls who whistled at pretty little girls, who told dirty, crass, cruel, and uh, uh, immoral jokes, then it's highly likely you're going to walk into a marriage with that same mindset. If your mother was a loud, abusive mother, if your, if your mother was not practicing godly discipline in the home and biblical reverence for the family, then more than likely that's how you're going to enter the marriage, handling money. The worship traditions, uh, what you believe, what you don't believe, on and on the list goes. But let's add one. Let's add, how do we face moral temptation? How did your mother and your father face moral temptation? How did they teach you to face moral temptation? Is there adultery in your family structure? 
Is there desertion in your family structure? Well, you bring two people together with different bags and they form a marriage made up of bags from this marriage and bags from that marriage. That is why you must be wise in who you marry. You know, children can be very lonely. Loneliness in children breeds fear. And fear always alienates from the love of God. That's why the Bible says perfect love casteth out all fear, and the perfect love, of course, is Christ. When a child is lonely, a child becomes afraid. Any form of intimacy is difficult for children who are lonely because they're often driven to fear and to self-dependency just to survive. Some of them actually form different kinds of personalities to cope with different kinds of situations. We find this with children who have been sexually abused. They develop a coping mechanism just to deal with the abuse, just to create this other person in order to handle the pain that came from that situation. Otherwise, they'd be destroyed. All of us, to one degree or another, have multiple personalities. You say, how do I know that? Because I am different around you than I am around my wife. I am different around my wife than I am around my enemy. I am different around my enemy than I am among the various people in my life. We develop differing coping mechanisms in order to just socially survive. But imagine a lonely child. A lonely child who has gone inside of himself or herself. You know what happens there? They have great difficulty developing any sense of intimacy. They don't know what a healthy relationship looks like. They're very likely to seek out anonymous relationships because they never really want to get too close to anyone. Your secret porn addictors, the people who are addicted to porn, are people who are having anonymous affairs because they're lonely and they're sinful. And we come to places in our lives where we have to learn to cope with the loneliness and cope with the fear, but they soon discover none of this ever satisfies. All that they've reached out to to fill the void never really satisfies. Because you see, we were created to think through the consequences of our actions. We can remain victims for the rest of our lives. We can live as victims ad nauseum. And yet Christ is the one who calls us not to be victims, but to be victors. That is why we will never have true intimacy with another human being, true intimacy the way God created it to be, apart from faith in Jesus Christ in you and faith in Jesus Christ in that person in whom you desire that intimacy. That is why we tell young people all the time, marry the right person. And we're lonely. And what happens in that loneliness is there is great fear. There's a loss of intimacy. The moral restraints are taken down because the child continues to look for any and every possible way in which he can satisfy the void that exists in his or her heart. Thus, the weak spot is created. Satan knows he has now created 
the weak spot. He has used the sin of the parents to visit on that child to the third and the fourth generation. We have seen this even in adopted children. When we trace back the sin that exists in that adopted adult, that child, adopted child who becomes an adult, oftentimes we're able to trace back the sin patterns to a parent they never even knew. Why? Because the sins of the parents are visited to the third and to the fourth generations. So the weak spot is created. Now what does Satan do with the weak spot? He infects it. He brings them face to face with moral temptations that in that infected state they cannot and will not handle. He gives us a graphic example. Again, remember, the first nine chapters designed for 12 years of age and under. Look at Proverbs chapter 7. You want to talk about graphic? Here it is. Proverbs chapter 7. Now, I know there are children present, so I'm going to try to be as generic as I can, but I hope you adults can read through the lines. Proverbs 7, verse 6. At the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice. I saw among the simple. My translation, teenager. It's not accurate, but it's close. I saw among the simple. I noticed among the young men a youth who lacked judgment. Got the picture? This guy is eavesdropping. He looks out the lattice of his window and he sees a kid about to make a very serious mistake because he's a fool. He's never been taught how to handle moral temptation. He was going down the street near her corner walking along in the direction of her house. Now listen to me closely. This boy has already sinned. He hasn't even met the woman he's going to meet. He's already sinned. He knew she lived there. And when he was over here and the guy in the window was looking through his lattice, the moment that kid turned and headed toward her house, the sin was already committed. Moral failure had already occurred. He's moving now in her direction. He knows she's there. And he's moving that way. Verse 9, at twilight. That's when the roaches come out, by the way. It's at nighttime most crimes occur because we don't think anybody sees. Yet it is clear as we read these passages that God's eyes run to and fro and he knows not only what you're doing but what you're thinking about doing. He knows what's in your head right now. He knows what thoughts and thought patterns are going through your mind right now. He knows some of you young people are trying to figure out a way right now in which to convince yourself that the man standing up there yelling at you is wrong. God knows that. He knows that's what you're thinking. And I may be wrong. 
but on this I'm not. And so he goes in verse eight, he was going down the street toward her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Got the picture? What's the first word of verse 10? What? Then, when? Here's the infection. Here is the scenario. Satan has now set up this fool for failure. He made the turn. He's standing there now in front of a house where he has no business being. Then, then, I would read that then and only then, out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. Now, by the way, I want you to notice it doesn't say she was a prostitute. It just says she was dressed like one. I believe there's ample evidence and indication here this girl was not a prostitute. She just liked to dress in such a way that men would look at her. She liked to wear the clothing in such a way that men would be attracted to her. Because you see, she knew that fundamentally men are stimulated by sight. And women are most stimulated by touch. So for him to look was going to conjure up images for him that would be very difficult for him to handle. And she had a crafty intent. In other words, she had cooked up a plan. Now, there's indication in that if this girl has cooked up a plan that she has seen this guy before. He's been hanging around her house before. And when he hung around her house maybe once or twice, the snake did not bite. But now the infection is setting in. The weak spot has been created. The infection has come in. Adultery very rarely happens overnight. Guys think about it for a long time. So do girls. You don't just suddenly wake up one morning and say, I'm going to commit adultery. You're usually hanging around the house of the adulterer or the adulteress for a long period of time prior. You're, you're communing. You're having an innocent relationship. You're just friends. You're just hanging out. But notice what happens. She is loud and defiant. Two characteristics of a woman that the scripture clearly condemns. Now, loud does not mean loud speaking. Loud refers to the obnoxiousness of public behavior. Defiant refers to the spirit. Here is a woman lacking submission to God-ordained authority who is loud and rebellious, obstinate and convinced that she is going to be in control of her life. No one is going to tell this woman what she can and cannot do. Now, verse 12, in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. Look at verse 11. Her feet never stay at home. 
In other words, where she is going is for the purpose of trouble. 50% of you are not going to agree with what I'm about to say. And it will depend on whether or not you're a man or a woman. But I would venture to say that most of the men sitting here will agree with me on this. Unless you're an animal. 50% of the men, all of the men will, will sit here. Most of the 50% of this congregation will absolutely agree with me on this. When it comes to moral temptation, I hold the woman responsible in a way different than I hold the man. Because a woman can and ought to make it clear to the man you're off limits. And unless the man's an animal, he's going to back off the moment he sees you are not interested. You go to a bar and you're sitting there on your stool with your short, tight skirt on and your makeup that makes you look like one of the movie stars. And you're sending eye signals across the floor. You're communing to men here, there, and everywhere. You're sending a message. And what is that message you're sending? You're in a place you have no business being. You're engaged in behavior that is truly ungodly. Ephesians chapter five, read it when you go home, the first few verses says, there should not be within you even a hint of sexual immorality. There should be no dirty jokes, no crass talk, no illicit behavior, read it. Paul says, not even a hint. Well, I would say as a man, if I walked into a place like that and saw a woman sitting there like that, there's more than a hint going on. And you have, and you women know this, you have the power to throw cold water right on our faces. So I ask you, why do you dress the way you do? Do you want to look like one of the movie stars? You see the commercials with the long hair? You know, she swishes her hair around, and it looks like the tail of a horse. She swishes it around. It's perfectly brunette or perfectly blonde or perfectly every strand is not one dead end. Do you know how much money they took to do that commercial to make that girl look like that? And you fall into that hook, line, and sinker. You want to look just like that. You'll spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars maybe even thousands, to make yourself look like one of those women you think is so beautiful. I saw a special once in which they looked at some of the top, most beautiful actor, actress, actresses that, you know, there's models and everybody without their makeup. You know what? They looked just like you. Just like you. Underneath that facade, under, you see, we don't want any wrinkles, we don't want any scales, we don't want any blemishes, so we'll do everything possible, and if none of that works, we'll get a surgeon to pull it up and pull it down and pull it back, we'll get tucks, we'll get this, we'll get that, because we want extreme 
Christian makeovers so that we can sit on the bar stool and say to the men, here I am. Here I am. You don't like this, do you? But I'm telling the truth and you know it. Now, I'm not saying Christians ought not to try to look good. I'm not saying you need to be dumpy. I'm not saying you need to look like a slob. That's not what I'm saying. But there's a point at which it becomes an idol. And you have the ability, because we're looking. Men are looking. Every man's, sit, every men's Bible study, every men's retreat that I've ever conducted, you know what the men want to talk about? Sex. How to handle moral temptation. You get a man, you get men, you want to know, women, do you want to know what men talk about in men's Bible studies and men's groups? They want to talk about how to handle you and how to handle the moral temptations that come just because they look at you. You know what you're doing? You're creating the house for the man to pass by. Now, I'm not excusing the man. I'm not saying for one minute that that man has no culpability. Any man who treats a woman like she's a piece of meat in order to fulfill the desires of his own flesh, his lust of the flesh, his lust of the eye, and his pride of life is a man who has greatly offended what God has created. So what happens to this guy? Let's finish it up. Now in the street, verse 12, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks, verse 13, she took hold of him. What made her think she could do that? Because he'd been there before. They had gone beyond the point where he's just walking by. She didn't just jump out of the bushes and grab him. She took hold of him and kissed him and with a stone-cold face, that's what that word brazen means, she said, now watch what happens here. This gets interesting. I have fellowship offerings at home. Today, I fulfilled my vows. You know what she's doing? Cloaking this behavior in religion. I deserve this. She even goes on and she says, so I came out to meet you. I looked for you. Didn't she have to look very far? And found you. Now I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. Why does she want him to know about what's in her bedroom? I've perfumed my bed with myrrh. She's hitting all the senses. Aloes and cinnamon, come, let's drink deep of love till the morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. You notice what she is now calling love? The same thing she called religious service. She has now convinced herself morally and spiritually that God's in favor of this. But not really. Not really. There's still a sense of moral repugnance in this woman. You want to know why I know that? Because of what she says next. She says, my husband is not at home. Why should that matter? If it's morally okay for you to do this, and if God's already approved, 
then why should we care that your husband's not at home? She goes even one step further. He's gone on a long journey, which means he's not going to be home for a long time. He took a lot of money with him. He won't be back for about 30 days. So we can do this again and again and again and again and again with persuasive words. She led him astray. You see, if I'm a man and I have that loneliness in my soul and I'm craving that intimacy, man, throw those words at me and I'm going to be tempted. Persuasive words. She led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. And you know something? That's where it usually begins. We're just buddies. Just chit-chatting. Good friends. What are you doing sitting on the bar stool when your husband's at work chit-chatting with somebody with whom you're good friends? What are you doing doing that? Why are you doing that? What business do you have in places like that? What business do you have wearing what you know is attracting men to look at your body? And I got to tell you something, we're looking. We're looking. We see it. You've shown it to us. We see it unless we've made a covenant with our eyes which in our day and age is becoming increasingly more difficult. And you know what else? We see it in your 16-year-old daughter, too. We're watching because you're showing. You're making it very clear you want us to look. Now you even put it on parts of your body that force us to look. You put symbols, insignias, even words so that we'll look. And then you'll come to church and you have already convinced yourself you've done nothing wrong. You see, the turning, the turning, the turning is where the sin occurred, both in men and in women, with persuasive words. All at once, like a snake, all at once. But did it really happen all at once? No, what happened next happened all at once. But what happened before that set up the snake. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. And we men know how to do that. We know how to drool. We know how to lust. It is a problem in every group I've ever conducted. Men sit there and say, give me a formula. I don't want to do this. Give me a formula. Give me a way out. Why? Because we're looking. And we're being tempted. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to a slaughter like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver. That really means the seat of his emotions. He's emotionally shot now. Like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. 
Next time we're together, I'm going to show you how it cost him his life because Proverbs 7 makes it clear there's a progression and it ends up in your own personal destruction. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. I've held them up for you to see. I've given you the details of David with Bathsheba. I've shown you the details of Samson with Delilah. The greatest and the strongest and the wisest man that ever lived was Solomon. People came from all over the world to see this guy, to sit at his feet, to hear the words of wisdom coming out of his mouth. 1 Kings 12 tells us his downfall that sent him on the journey to write the book of Ecclesiastes where he concluded that all of life is vain was that he loved many strange women. I've held them out for you to see. I didn't hide them. They're there in scripture. The heroes of the Bible and their failures are there for you to observe. But the beauty in each one of those cases is that upon repentance, God redeemed their pain. He redeemed their pain. He filled the voids in their lives. He says, many are the victims. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. You know, there's a lot to be said about self-discovery, about learning how to deal with yourself, what makes you tick. There's a lot to do in unpacking the bags that bring us to the point where we become immoral people. That's a lot of hard work. And there's a sense in many of you, sense in many of us of loneliness that leads to fear and a fear that leads to a crisis of who we really are. We're not just sexual creatures. God created us for purposes much higher than that. We are created in the image and the likeness of God. And because of that, like God, we have minds that are reasonable. We are eternal creatures. We are mortal creatures. We are immortal creatures. We are people who know what it means to live in the context of temptation. Your kids are being raised in the friends generation where it's just frowned upon to criticize the fulfilling of the natural lust of the flesh. We laugh at the word virgin. You're a virgin? How could this be? How could you have come through your life this far and still be a virgin? How could that have happened? There must be something wrong with you. And we frown and we scowl and we criticize and we mock those who would dare stand up and say, abstinence until marriage. 
is God's norm. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) And then we become a moral conscience. And our society naturally hates its conscience. So I ask you this morning, how is your self-image and identity being fulfilled? In what a man thinks of you? You men would dare to make that out of a woman? You would, di- would you want other men to look at your daughters the way you look at other women and their daughters? Are we that crass? Are we that immoral that we would not make a covenant with our eyes? Have you already turned? Are you already heading down to her house? Then you've already sinned. And you must come back to the cross. You must say, God, it's going to be hard. Not minimizing this. It's going to be hard. But I am calling on you to give me a sense of identity that it is only you that can fulfill. No sexual relationship. No lustful thought. No amount of pornography. No amount of temptation that I give into is going to fulfill the craving of my heart to know you in the way I need to know you. In Christ is where your satisfaction is to be found. You know the definition of the word lust? Very simply means something that can't be fulfilled. Lust is never satisfied. Never. So you lust today at level one, you're going to lust tomorrow at level two, and then level three, and then level four. That's why they distinguish now between soft porn and hardcore porn and all the other kinds of extreme porn that are out there. Why? Because they're looking for the guy to move up the ladder, to graduate. Because lust, they know, is never satisfied. Never. So they always have an audience, and you pay them your bucks, and you fall. How do you resist? How do you resist? By hiding the word in your heart. And using that word when the enemy stands to stand against him. I'll show you that the next time we're together. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries. Proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.